0: Section 6 of France in the 19th Century. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. France in the 19th Century by Elizabeth Latimer. Louis Napoléon's Early Career. Strasbourg, Boulogne, Ham. Part 2. News was at once sent by telegraph to Paris. But the great wooden armed telegraph stations were in those days uncertain and unmanageable. Only half of the telegram reached the Tuileries, where the king and his ministers sat up all night waiting for more news at daybreak of october thirty a courier arrived and then they learned that the rising had been suppressed and that the king and his confederates were in prison meantime the young officer in charge of louis napoleon's two letters to queen hortense had prematurely come to the conclusion that the prince was meeting with success and had hurried off the letter announcing the good news to his mother how to dispose of such a capture as the head of the house of bonaparte was a great puzzle to Louis-Philippe's ministers. They dared not bring him to trial. They dared not treat him harshly. In the end he was carried to Paris, lodged for a few days in the Conciergerie, and then sent off, without being told his destination, to Cherbourg, where he was put on board a French frigate, which sailed with orders not to be opened till she reached the Equator. There it was found that her destination was Rio de Janeiro, where she was not to suffer the Prince to land, but after a leisurely voyage she was to put him ashore in the United States. As the vessel was about to put to sea, an official personage waited on the Prince, and after inquiring if he had funds enough to pay his expenses on landing, handed him, on the part of Louis-Philippe, a considerable sum. On reaching Norfolk, Virginia, the Prince landed, and learned, to his very great relief, that all his fellow conspirators had been tried before a jury at Strasbourg, and acquitted. He learned, too, shortly afterwards, that his mother was very ill. The shock of his misfortune and the great exertions she had made on his behalf when she thought his life might be in danger had proved too much for her. Louis-Napoleon recrossed the ocean, landed in England, and made his way to a Renenberg. He was just in time to see Queen Hortense on her deathbed, to receive her last wishes, and to hear her last sigh. After her death the French government insisted that the Swiss Confederacy must compel Louis Napoléon to leave their territory. The Swiss refused, repaired the fortifications of Geneva, and made ready for a war with France. But Louis Napoléon of his own free will relieved the Swiss government from all embarrassment by passing over into England, where it was not long before he made preparations for a new attempt to overthrow Louis Philippe's government. He lived quietly in London at that period, visiting few persons except Count d'Orsay at Gorehouse, the residence of Lady Blessington, and occupying himself a great deal with writing. He had already completed a manual of artillery, and was engaged on a book that he called Les Idées Napoléoniennes. Its principal idea was that France wanted an emperor, a definite head, but that she also needed extreme democratic principles. Therefore an empire ought to be founded on an expression of the will of the people, in plain words, on universal suffrage. The mistake Napoleon III made in his after-career, as well as in his idée napoleonienne, was in not perceiving that an empire without military glory would become a pool of corruption, while vast military efforts which would embroil France with all Europe would lose the support of the bourgeoisie. In short, as Louis Blanc has said, he imagined a despotism without its triumphs, a throne surrounded by court favourites, but without Europe at its footstool a great name with no great man to bear it. The empire, in short, minus its Napoleon." During the months that Louis Napoleon passed in London, he was maturing the plot of a new enterprise. He was collecting round him his adherents, some of them Carbonero leaders, with whom he had been associated in Italy. Some were his personal friends, some were men whose devotion to the first Napoleon made them ashamed to refuse to support his nephew, even in an insurrection that they disapproved while some were mere adventurers. Very few persons were admitted to his full confidence. The affair was managed by a clique, quote, the members of which had been previously sounded, and in general those were set aside who could not embark in the undertaking heart and hand, quote. By all these men, Louis Napoléon was treated as an imperial personage. To the Italians he stood pledged, and had stood pledged since 1831, that if they helped him to ascend the throne of France, he would fight afterwards for the cause of Italy. This pledge he redeemed at Solferino and Magenta, but not till after some impatient rash Italians, believing him forsworn, had attempted his assassination. In vain he was advised to wait, to let Louis Philippe's government fall to the ground for want of a foundation. He had made his decision and was resolved to adhere to it, not fearing to make that step which lies between the sublime and the ridiculous. The attempt had been in preparation ever since Louis Napoléon had arrived in England. There were about forty of his adherents living in London at his expense, awaiting the moment for action. What form that action was to take, none of them knew. It was resolved to make the movement in the month of August, 1840. The prince calculated that the remains of his great-uncle, restored by England to France, being by that time probably on their way from St. Helena, public enthusiasm for the great emperor would be at its height and that he would have the honour of receiving those revered remains when they had been brought back from exile by Louis-Philippe's son. Besides this, the garrisons of northern France happened at that moment to contain the two regiments whose fidelity he had tampered with at Strasbourg four years before. Of course there were French agents of police, detectives as we call them, watching the Prince in London, and this made it necessary that he should be very circumspect in making his preparations. A steamer, the Edinburgh Castle, was secretly engaged. The owners and the captain were informed that she was chartered by some young men for a pleasure trip to Hamburg. On Tuesday, August 4, 1840, the Edinburgh Castle came up the Thames, and was moored alongside a wharf facing the custom-house. As soon as she was at the wharf, Count Orsi, who seems to have been the most businesslike man of the party, shipped nine horses, a travelling carriage, and a large van containing seventy rifles and as many uniforms. Proclamations had been printed in advance. They were placed in a large box, together with a little store of gold, which formed the Prince's treasure. At dawn all this was done, and the Edinburgh Castle started down the river. At London Bridge she took in thirteen men, and at Greenwich three more. At Blackwall some of the most important conspirators came on board. The boat reached Gravesend about two o'clock, where twelve more men joined them. Only three or four of those on board knew where they were going, or what was expected of them. They were simply obeying orders." At Gravesend, the prince was to have joined his followers, and the Edinburgh castle was at once to have put to sea, touching, however, at Ramsgate before crossing the channel. Those on board waited and waited, but no prince came. Only five persons in the vessel, one of whom was Charles Telin, the prince's valet, knew what they were there for. For some time the passengers were kept quiet by breakfast. Then, having no one at their head, they began to grow unruly those in the secret were terribly afraid that the river police might take notice of the large number of foreigners on board, especially as the vessel claimed to be an excursion-boat, and not a petticoat was visible. It was all important to catch the tide, all important to reach Boulogne before sunrise on the 5th of August, when their friends expected them, but no prince came. Major Parquin, who had been one of the Strasbourg conspirators, was particularly unmanageable, and late in the afternoon he insisted on going ashore to buy some cigars, saying that those on board were detestable. In vain Persigny and Dorcy, who in the prince's absence considered themselves to be in command, assured him that to land was impossible. Parquin would not recognize their authority. The rest of the story I will tell in Count Dorcy's own words. He wrote his account in Fraser's magazine, 1879. The wrath of the major was extreme. There was danger in his anger. I consulted Persigny on the advisability of letting him go on shore, with the distinct understanding that he should be accompanied by me or by charles talin the truth it may be suspected was that parquin was drunk or that having suspected the object of the expedition he had some especial object in going ashore which he would not reveal to his fellow-conspirators persigny continues count d'orcy consented to the idea and parquin and i got into the boat the vessel was lying in the stream talin was with us As we were walking to the cigar-shop the major remarked a boy sitting on a log of wood and feeding a tame eagle with shreds of meat. The eagle had a chain fastened to one of its claws. The major turned twice to look at it and went on without saying a word. On our way back to the boat, however, we saw the boy within two yards of the landing-place. The major went up to him and, looking at the eagle, said in French, "'Is it for sale?' The boy did not understand him." My dear major, I said, I hope you do not intend to buy that eagle. We have other things to attend to. For heaven's sake, come away. Why not? I will have it. Ask him what he asks for it." The major paid a sovereign for the eagle, and this unlucky purchase was the cause that endless ridicule was cast on the expedition. It has always been supposed that the eagle was one of the properties provided for the occasion, and that it was intended to perch on the Napoleon column at Boulogne it may well be supposed that this is not far from the truth, and that Major Parquin had the eagle waiting for him at Gravesend. Eagles are so very uncommon in England that it is unlikely that a boy without set purpose would be waiting with a tame one on a wharf at Gravesend. The unfortunate bird became in the end the property of a butcher in Boulogne. By six p.m. the party in the Edinburgh castle grew very uneasy. The prince had not arrived. Count Orsi took a post-chaise and drove overland to Ramsgate, where Count Montalon, Napoleon's fellow-exile at St. Helena, and two colonels were waiting the arrival of the steamer. Only one of these gentlemen had been let into the plot, and Montalon was subsequently deeply wounded by having been excluded. About dawn, when this party had just gone to bed, the Edinburgh castle steamed up to the beautiful Ramsgate pier, but it was already the hour when she should have been off Boulogne. A second time louis Napoleon had damaged his chances and risked his friends by his want of punctuality. He had not taken proper precautions as to his mode of leaving London. He found that the police were on the alert, and it was late in the day before he contrived to leave his house unseen. He might have made more exertion, but he had quite forgotten the importance of the tide. What was now to be done? Four hours is the passage from Ramsgate to Boulogne. It would not do to arrive there in broad daylight. They dared not stay at Ramsgate it became necessary to put to sea, and to steam about aimlessly till night arrived. The captain and the crew had to be told the object of the expedition, the van had to be opened, and the arms and uniforms distributed. This was done after dark, and no light was allowed on board the steamer. At three o'clock a.m. of August sixth, 1840, the Edinburgh Castle was off Vimereux, a little landing-place close to Boulogne. The disembarkation was begun at once, the steamer was ill-provided with boats, she had but one and could only land eight men at a time this was one of the many oversights of the expedition at five a m the little troop clad as french soldiers marched up to the barracks at boulogne the gates were thrown open by friends within and the prince and his followers entered the yard the reason why it had been so important to reach boulogne twenty-four hours earlier was that a certain colonel pigelier who was a strong republican was sure to be against them Some French friends of the prince, who were in the secret, had therefore invited Colonel Piguelier to a shooting party on the 4th, the invitation including one to pass the night at a house in the country. But by the evening of the 5th he had returned to his quarters in Boulogne. At the moment of the prince's entrance with his little troop into the yard of the barracks, the soldiers of the garrison were just getting out of their beds. The few who were already afoot on different duties were soon made to understand who the prince was and what his party had come for. At the name of Napoleon they rushed up to the dormitories to spread the news. In a short time all the men were formed in line in the barrack-yard. The prince, at the head of his little troop, addressed them. His speech was received with enthusiasm. At that moment Colonel Piguelier, in full uniform, appeared upon the scene. One of the prince's party threatened to fire on him with a revolver. His soldiers at once took his part. It was the affair of Strasbourg over again. In vain, threats and promises were urged upon the colonel. All he would say was, quote, You may be Prince Louis Napoléon, or you may not. Napoléon, your predecessor, overthrew legitimate authority, and it is not right for you to attempt to do the same thing in this place. Murder me if you like, but I will do my duty to the last. Quote. The soldiers took the side of their commander. Resistance was of no avail. The prince and his party were forced to leave the barracks, the gates of which were shut at once by Colonel Piguelier's order. The only concession the prince had been able to obtain was that he and his followers should not be pursued by the troops, but be left to be dealt with by the civil authorities. The failure was complete. The day before, a party of the prince's friends had been at Boulogne on the lookout for his arrival, but when they found he did not come, they had left the city. All that remained to be done was to attempt to save the prince. He was almost beside himself, Apparently he lost his self-command, and men of more nerve and experience did with him what they would. He and his party reached the sea at last. The National Guard of Boulogne began firing on them. The Prince, Count Persigny, Colonel Voisin, and Galvani, an Italian, were put into a boat. As they pushed off, a fire of musketry shattered the little skiff, and threw them into the water. Colonel Voisin's arm was broken at the elbow, and Galvani was hit in the body. The prince and Pelsigny came up to the surface at some distance from the land. Colonel Voisin and Galvany, being nearer to the shore, were immediately rescued. Count Orsi says that as the prince swam towards the steamer, still fired on by the National Guard stationed on the heights, a custom-house boat headed him off. But in Boulogne it was reported and believed that he was captured and brought to land in a bathing-machine. The prisoners were tried by a royal decree no one was sentenced to death but the prince count montolon count persigny colonel voisin major parquin and another officer were sent to the fortress of ham on the frontier of belgium where they occupied the same quarters as prince polignac and the other ministers of charles x had done count montolon four months after made piteous appeals to be let out on parole for one day that he might be present when the body of napoleon was brought back to the capital the prince passed five years in prison reading much, and doubtless meditating much, on the mistakes of his career. Many plans of escape had been secretly proposed to him, but he rejected all of them, fearing they were parts of a trap laid for him by the authorities. It has always been believed, however, and it is probably true, that Louis-Philippe would have been very willing to have the jailers shut their eyes while Louis-Napoleon walked out of their custody, believing that the ridicule that had attended his two attempts at revolution had ruined his chances as a pretender to the throne. During the years louis Napoleon was imprisoned at Ham, he received constant marks of sympathy, especially from foreigners. He was known to favor the project of an interoceanic canal by the Nicaragua route between the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans, and the government of Nicaragua proposed to him to become president of a company that would favor its views, expressing the hope that he would make himself as great in America by undertaking such a work as his uncle had made himself by his military glory the illness of his father in florence gave prince louis napoleon a good reason for asking enlargement on parole from the french government louis philippe was willing to grant this but his ministers demurred unless louis napoleon would ask pardon loyalement this louis napoleon refused to do and having by this time managed to extract a loan of six thousand pounds from the rich and eccentric duke of brunswick he resolved to attempt an escape here is the story as he told it himself when he reached england the governor of ham it must be premised was a man wholly uncorruptible. He was kind to his prisoner, with whom he played whist every evening, but he was bent on fulfilling his duty. This duty obliged him to see the prince twice a day, and at night to turn the key upon him which he put into his pocket. The fortress of Ham forms a square, with a round tower at each of the angles. There is only one gate. Between the towers are ramparts, on one of which the prince daily walked, and in one corner had made a flower-garden. A canal ran outside the ramparts on two sides. Barracks were under the others. Tellin, the prince's valet, was suffered to go in and out of the fortress at his pleasure. On the 23rd of May, 1845, The went to Saint-Quentin, the nearest large town, and hired a cabriolet, which was to meet him the next day at an appointed place upon the high road. The prince's plan depended on there being workmen in the prison, and he had been about to make a request to have his rooms papered and painted, when the Governor informed him that the staircase was to be repaired. The day before the one chosen for the attempt, two English gentlemen, probably by a previous understanding, had visited the prisoner, and he asked one of them to lend his passport to the valet Talin. Quote, Very early on the morning of May 25th the Prince, Dr. Coneau, and Talin were looking out eagerly for the arrival of the workmen. A private soldier whose vigilance they had reason to dread had been placed on guard that morning but by good luck he was called away to attend a dress-parade. The workmen arrived. They proved to be all painters and masons, which was a disappointment to the prince, who had hoped to go out as a carpenter. But at once he shaved off his long moustache and put over his own clothes a coarse shirt, a workman's blouse, a pair of blue overalls, much worn, and a black wig. His hands and face he also soiled with paint. Then, putting on a pair of wooden shoes and taking an old clay pipe in his mouth and throwing a board over his shoulder, He prepared to leave the prison. He had with him a dagger and two letters from which he never parted, one written by his mother, the other by his uncle the emperor. It was seven o'clock by the time these preparations were made. Tellin called to the workman on the staircase to come in and have a glass of wine. On the prince's way downstairs he met two warders. One Tellin skilfully drew apart, pretending to have something to say to him. The other was so intent on getting out of the way of the board carried by the supposed workman that he did not look in the prince's face, and the prince and Telin passed safely into the yard. As he was passing the first sentinel, the prince let his pipe fall from his mouth. He stooped, picked it up, and relighted it deliberately. Quote, Close to the door of the canteen he came upon an officer reading a letter. A little farther on, a few privates were sitting on a bench in the sun. The concierge at the gate was in his lodge, but his attention was given to Telin, who was following the prince accompanied by his dog ham the sergeant whose duty it was to open and shut the gate turned quickly and looked at the supposed workman but a movement the prince made at that moment with his board caused him to step aside he opened the gate the prince was free between the two drawbridges the prince met two workmen coming towards him on the side his face was exposed he shifted his board like a man weary of carrying a load upon one shoulder The men appeared to eye him with suspicion, as if surprised at not knowing him. Suddenly one said, "'Oh, it is Bertin!' and they passed on into the fortress." The prince hastened with Talin to the place where the cabriolet engaged the day before, was waiting for them. As louis Napoleon was about to fling away the board he had been carrying, another cabriolet drove by. As soon as it was out of sight, the prince jumped into his own, shook the dust off his clothes, kicked off his wooden shoes, and seized the reins the fifteen miles to st quentin were soon accomplished the prince got out at some distance from the town and tellin entered it alone to exchange the cabriolet for a post-chaise the mistress of the post-house offered him a large piece of pie which he thankfully accepted knowing that it would be a godsend to his master the woman whom they had passed upon the highway on entering the town took tellin aside and asked him how he came to be driving with such a shabby common man that morning for tellin was well known in the neighbourhood Before he rejoined the prince with the pie and the post-chaise, Louis-Napoleon had become very impatient. Seeing a carriage approach, he stopped it, and asked the occupant if he had seen anything of a post-chaise coming from Saint-Quentin. The traveller proved afterwards to have been the prosecuting attorney of the district, le procureur du roi. It was nine in the evening when the prince, Tellin, and the dog-ham were safely in the carriage. They reached Valenciennes at a quarter to three a.m., and had to wait more than an hour at the station for the train. The prince had discarded his working clothes, but still wore his black wig. The train arrived at last. By help of the Englishman's passport, the prince safely crossed the frontier, and soon reached Brussels. Thence he went by way of Ostend to London. He was not in time to see his father, who died in Florence before he could get permission from the German states to cross the continent. All the French papers treated his escape as a matter of no consequence. Immediately on reaching London, he wrote a letter to Louis-Philippe pledging himself to make no further attempt to disturb the peace of France during his reign. He probably judged that the end of the Orléans dynasty might be near. His escape from prison was not known until the evening. Dr. Conot gave out that he had been very ill during the night, but under the influence of opiates was sleeping quietly. The governor insisted on remaining all day in the sitting-room, and finally upon seeing him. In the dim light of the sick-chamber he saw only a figure, with its face turned to the wall, covered up in the bedclothes at last he became suspicious tellin's prolonged absence seemed unaccountable a closer examination was insisted on and the truth was discovered nobody was punished except dr conneau who suffered a few months imprisonment End of chapter three and a section six